0: Welcome to everyone joining us online. Let's get our Bibles out and open to 2nd Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings 5, page 426 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. If you get to Chronicles, you went too far. Ezra, and Nehemiah, you're way past. Second Chronicles chapter 5. We're in the fifth week of this series distinct. Let's talk about this for a second. We've, in week one, we talked about how God doesn't call us the things we think we can do. We looked at the life of Josiah, who was called to be king at eight years of age. In the second week, Pastor Jake came and talked to us about how God's word is more powerful than we often think that it is. And we looked at the creation story Then in week three, we talked about how God is more willing than we often think he is. And we looked at the widow, the jar of oil. You remember that? Then last week, we talked about the distinctiveness of God in community and how God puts people around us, not the people we want, but the people he wants to accomplish the things that he desires to do. And these, all of these principles these weeks all flow together they all intermingle there all of these uh, stories that we've looked at will teach us multiple parts of this journey that we've been on together and so today as we look at second Kings chapter 5 we'll again see some of these principles we've talked about and we'll see new principles as God continues to build. so as we get our listening guide out I want us to begin by Laying some context down, the biggest difference in our lives won't come from the dreams we dream, but the decisions that we make. Now, I want you to think about this. You know, I am big on dreams, and I think you ought to have dreams. But I want you to understand something that you can dream about something all you want, it's not going to make a bit of difference. What makes a difference is the decisions that we make. Now, think with me for a minute. How do we make decisions? We make decisions based on what we perceive to be the outcome, right? So when it comes to making spiritual decisions, we make those decisions based on our perceived outcome of the decisions. Now, how important must it be, if that's true, which it is, that we are making decisions with the knowledge of the God of the Bible and not a cultural Jesus. Very, very important because that is going to have everything to do with the decisions that you make and the decisions that I make. And we're going to see that played out today. I want us to Look at this passage of Scripture. It's going to come up on the screen. This comes from Isaiah 55. Here's what the Bible says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and our God and to our God for he will abundantly pardon isn't that good news? And then God says something else. There's this invitation for someone who seeks, there's this amazing promise about a God who pardons, but then a warning. Some information that's going to pertain to how we make decisions moving forward. Then comes for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God understands that when he invites us, that... That Scripture is pertaining to to seekers, to people who are seeking God, who don't know God. And yet, in the context of an invitation and promises, comes this warning that as you enter into responding to the things God's doing, keep this very important truth in mind. God's not like you. And He's not like me. And be careful about what you think God's going to do. Where did you get that information? We don't want to serve a cultural Jesus. We want to serve a biblical Jesus. It's very, very important. Why is that? Why are we asking you to, to spend the next year praying for those graduates, that we made that card so you could hang it up in your prayer closet or put it somewhere specific. So why? Why are we doing that? Listen, prayer is not part of the work. How many times have I said this? Prayer is the work. Do you understand? And what do we know to be true? Listen, we, we know that we need to be praying for all of our kids, but we know specifically that those young people, as they move from one season of their life into the next season, we know the attack that they're under. And we also know that as they move into the job uh, place, as they move onto college campuses, we know that many of the things that God has instilled in them, the principles that they've learned, the truths that they've learned, make zero sense in the context of the culture in which they're going into. Right? Yes. Listen. Think about how many things the Bible says that don't make any sense. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, living is dying and dying is living. What, What does that mean? In Matthew 10, save your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll save it. I was reading this past week in Ezekiel 21. And I was thinking about how in that chapter the Bible teaches us that the way up is down. That exaltation requires humility. And that in the same passage it teaches the way down is up. And that self-promotion leads to humiliation. Nowhere in this culture and in this world are you going to go where that makes any sense. That is antithetical to everything that our culture would seek to tell you. According to Psalm sixteen eleven, if you please God, you will have pleasures forevermore. But according to Proverbs 27, please yourself and you'll never be satisfied. You see? The opposite of what the world around us believes. And so, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone this morning that there is ample opportunity and strong motivation for people to create a God that makes sense to them and to ignore the places in Scripture that teach things that are going to be hard to obey or, or hard to make sense of or hard to follow. And so when we get to 2 Kings chapter 5, that's exactly what we're going to see. And God's going to help us this morning. So let's pray and ask him to do just that as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you for this moment that you providentially have given us to look at this place in your word. And God, each of us today has come into this place somewhere on this journey. And you are aware of each of us and where we are and what has led us to now and you even know what's in store. But God, as we stretch our minds to try to comprehend that reality, will you help us to live in this moment and to make decisions in this moment pertaining to the spiritual things that you'll say that would change the trajectory of our lives, that would reveal your will. God, that would move us to where you'd have us to be. We don't want to miss what's in the details because it doesn't make sense to us. So we need you, Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear, to prepare our hearts to receive, and to give courage where courage is needed to obey. For your honor, glory, and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we see the the clash of what God says against what we think And what happens in that tension when God says something that just doesn't make any sense? Now, this story takes place. This is a true historical story, and it takes place in a true historical context. And so understand that we're talking about something that happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember a few weeks ago I explained to you how after Solomon, the the people of God were split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and then the other ten tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this is in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is gone through a terrible civil war, a terrible time of unrest and war. And so we're going to be introduced to this man. His name is Naaman. And he's an unsaved military commander. He's not from Israel. He's a Syrian or an Aramean, and he is not someone who worships the God of the Bible. But I want you to see the surprising things that God does, the unexpected ways that God works, and then what can God teach us from Naaman's Encounter. Look at verse 1, 2 Kings 5. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now, now listen. Look at what verse 1 tells us. Understand, Syria is the world's superpower at this time. They have just decimated Israel. Israel is absolutely no match for Syria and under the leadership of this man Naaman. But notice notice what the Bible says, that this man, because of him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And who did the Lord give victory to Syria over? Israel. And so again, This is just a little clue about how God works in mysterious ways. God warned Israel over and over and over through multiple different voices of multiple prophets to repent and to turn back from their wickedness. They didn't listen. God told them what He was going to do, and then He did exactly according to what He said. And so now we see that God gave the victory. And so the king of Syria was a man named Ben-Hadad, and... He would have been the most powerful person on earth. The second most powerful person would have been this man, Haman, who would have been his prime minister or his, the general over his army. But the Bible says, but he was a leper. Now, in the first service, I said, now that is a big but. And a couple people giggled. And everyone else was like, Phew. And I thought, I should have said that differently. But I kind of enjoy saying that. (laughs) It is. Listen. Leprosy is the most feared disease at this time. It's an incurable skin disease that attacks the nerve endings. It spreads all over your body. It starts with one little white flaky patch. And then it starts to run rampant all over your body. And as it... As it deteriorates your nervous system, you lose feeling in all of your extremities. Your extremities begin to become covered with gaping wounds. They ultimately eventually rot off. I've told you the story before multiple times about when I was working with pastors teaching in the seminary in India, how I encountered leprosy in children. It was one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. I literally could smell the leprosy before the kids even got close to me. I could smell it. Horrific disease. And so there's this moment where this powerful, wealthy, influential, successful man finds a little spot on his body. Maybe he was getting dressed one morning, and he finds a spot. And when he sees it, his whole life changes. Everything begins to flash before him in a matter of seconds. Suddenly, all the metals hanging from his chest, all of his wealth, all of his accomplishments don't mean a thing. You ever found a spot? You ever had a defining moment, phone call, diagnosis, crashing information, and suddenly everything changes? And in the midst of his hopelessness, God uses the most unexpected person. Look at verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive a young girl from the land of Israel, she waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, the king, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed. And took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So here's what happens. Suddenly, in the midst of this absolutely incurable, horrific diagnosis, comes a glimmer of hope. So, because of his position, it's no problem for him to walk into the king. And he says to Ben-Hadad, listen, I've heard about the possibility I might be healed. Now, Ben-Hadad is not just some generous, benevolent leader. He will do anything to salvage his number one warrior who's been so successful in crushing all the opposition. And so, obviously, it is highly in his favor to see that Naaman gets healed if there's any possibility. So, he loads up his chariots with literally millions of dollars in gold and silver and Louis Vuitton bags. And off he goes, traveling from Syria all the way to Samaria. And when he gets there, look at verse 6. So he brings the letter to the king of Israel, which would be Jehoram. He brings it to the king, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you that I have sent and my servant to you, that you may heal him of leprosy. Now, you understand, Jehoram is, this is, is in the midst of a, a war-torn... He's the king, but he doesn't have any power. Everything's a disaster. And the most powerful man on earth has now sent a letter to him and said, Look, I sent my number one guy to you. I want you to heal him of leprosy. Well, he can't heal anybody of leprosy. And let me tell you what you don't want to do. You don't want to get Ben-Hadad mad at you. Because if the king of Syria gets mad at you, you're not going to live very long. And so he's already hanging by a thread. And so he gets this letter. And so verse 7 says, As it happens when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends me a man to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. It's almost like this can only end bad because I can't heal him of his leprosy. And so when I send him away unhealed, I'm done. Verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes... That he sent to the king and he said, well, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, there's a very important clue here. If you want to understand the spiritual condition of Israel and in particular the spiritual condition of the king, Jehoram. Why did Jehoram not say, oh, I can send him to Elisha? You notice that? It just goes to show you how far they've drifted. That he doesn't even think about the prophet. Now, the other question that I think is more pertinent for us to really focus in on is, how did Elisha know that the king was in distress? This is an important principle. Because this plays out in your life all The time. And I don't want you to miss it. Probably not a day goes by that this principle is not played out in your life. God gets information where God wants information. Period. Listen, the greatest communicator, the inventor of communication let me tell you something about God. What God wants you to know, you're going to know. I can just promise you. That's how that's going to go. You may miss it. You may falsely respond to it and make a bad decision based on it. But you're going to know. You're going to know. I marvel at people who are, who, who are th- almost, you know, Make it this mysterious thing about God letting you know things. He does that constantly. We're just not paying attention. Look at verse 9. Then Naaman went out with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. So here we are, the moment of truth, the the. The man Naaman with all of his wealth and power and authority and might, his chariots and his, just his grand entourage has pulled up at the prophet's house and he's standing at the door. And so it's about to happen. This moment of, is the impossible going to happen? Is it not? Am I, what is it going to be? Verse 10, and Elisha sent A messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. See, he gets to Elisha's door and Elisha's inside watching Netflix. And he sends his servant to the door to talk to Naaman. Now that's not the way Naaman saw this going down. That's not the way Naaman had envisioned this. That's not the way Naaman is accustomed to people responding to him. Verse 11, so Naaman became furious and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Naaman was going to show him the spot. And say, man, heal this before this kills me. And then he takes it a step further and he starts reasoning again in himself. Verse 12, Are not the Abana and the far, far, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. He thought to himself, Now hold on a second. This servant comes out and tells me to dunk in the Jordan River, which is a filthy river, by the way. I think a lot of people who... Uh, are just sitting in church but ignorant of geography picture the Jordan River as this crystal clear beautiful drinking drinkable it is a dump it's a muddy it's a muddy mess it would just be like going into one of our rivers filled with mud you can't See anything. But in Damascus, there's beautiful, crystal clear rivers where he's from. So he's enraged. Isn't it interesting how we struggle when God doesn't do the things the way we think he ought to? Especially when it pertains to us. You see, it's a bit troubling when God doesn't do things the way we expect in your life but it's really bothersome when he does that in my life especially with something as important as this and so Naaman turns around and it's like a waste of time I'm gonna go back to Damascus and I'm gonna die of leprosy verse 13 and his servants came near and spoke to him and said my father if the prophet had told you to do something great would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean. You see, Naaman didn't realize what was going on in the moment, but his servants did, maybe, sort of, kind of. But we can. See, what God is teaching Naaman is that God's way is the only way. See, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it God's way. Not your way. God's not bending around what you think ought to happen the way you think he ought to. He has a specific way that he's predetermined he's going to do something. And that's the only way that it's going to happen. Verse 14, so he went down and he dipped seven times. Look how anticlimactic this is. He dipped seven times in the Jordan. So there he is. I mean, you know, he's coming up muddy, nasty, nasty. One, two, three, four, five, six, no change. I imagine he's really got this scowl on his face. About five times the servants are going, come on, come on, two more times, one more time. You know, they're cheering him on. And then on the final time, the Bible says his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Look at that. Now, you realize that What this is illustrating to us is that it's not the details that matter. It's the God in the details that matter. See, it's not the water that heals him. It's not the river that heals him. It's not the place geographically he is. It's not the fact of who he talked to or what he did or any of those things. It's the God in the details that healed him. Now, this is important I want you to perk up a minute because there's details in your life right now. And you're snoozing through them. Pay attention. It's the God in the details that matters. And look, when God says what He says, Healing doesn't come from studying about it. Healing doesn't come from having conversations about it. Healing comes from doing it. You got that? Doing it. But, it. but listen, obedience is always the right answer when we don't know what to do and we don't understand what's going on. But listen, God is not about Just some blind obedience. Listen, God, you're not going to make God's day when you come home with flowers to God on Valentine's Day. No. It's expected. When you just obey God in just blind obedience, you're just doing it like, I don't know, I don't care, I'm just doing... What God says. You think that's pleasing to God? You think Lisa's just overjoyed? It's Valentine's Day. Here you go, honey. It's Valentine's Day. It's a card and some stuff. You know, I didn't want you to be mad and say I didn't do anything for you. You know, that's going to be a real win. Right? Right? But when you show up on Tuesday at some random moment with something to just say, you know what? I know you've been playing in the flower beds all day and your hair's all jacked up and you got some dirt over here on your cheek. But I just wanted to tell you how much I love you. cha Cha-ching! See, God's ultimate goal in our lives is not our obedience, it's our affection. Now listen, listen. God wants a relationship with you, right? Yeah. And relationships are built on what? Trust. And do you know what? You don't trust anyone that you don't have affection for. He wants your affection. He wants my affection. He wants us to obey Him and to trust Him because we have affection for Him. That's what He's teaching Naaman. That's what He's teaching me and you. Now look at what happens. Now Naaman's healed. Verse 15, so he returns to the man of God, he and all of his aides the whole crew, and they came and they stood before him. Now understand, this is the first time that Naaman has met Elisha face to face. They've never seen each other before. And so now, here he's healed, and he's standing face to face with the prophet who led him to God's healing. Now what would you say in this moment? How can I ever repay you for healing my leprosy? Listen, I got truckloads of gold and silver and all kinds of designer clothing. I I mean, and it's just a down payment. Whatever I can do, I'll name my firstborn son after you. Thank you so much for healing. I mean, I I was going to die if it wasn't for you. And yet, there's no mention of leprosy. He stands before Elisha, and he doesn't even mention leprosy. He says in the end of verse 15, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all of the earth except in Israel. You see that? What just happened? Naaman didn't come to Samaria to meet God. Naaman came to Samaria to get rid of leprosy. But in getting rid of leprosy, he met God. And meeting God superseded getting rid of leprosy. So let's look at a couple principles we can take away before we finish the story. The first one I want you to see is this our pain is God's platform. Our pain is always God's platform. Your pain and my pain, whatever the pain is, however the pain came about, whatever the cause of pain, type of pain, struggle, hardship, that's the platform that God desires to use in our lives. How do I know that? Because the entire Bible teaches this, yet it is one of the most missed and misunderstood principles in all of Scripture. Case in point, notice the little servant girl, girl, the nameless Israelite slave who initially tells Naaman's wife about a man in Samaria who could heal him. How did she end up there? See, one day she was outside with her little brothers playing in the yard. Just doing things that a little girl does. And all of a sudden she heard a loud noise. And some big scary men came over the horizon. And they burned down her village. They probably murdered her family. Took her captive. Brought her to a foreign place. And enslaved her as a servant to this man's wife. She was separated from everything she knows and everything she loves. You'd be hard-pressed to think of a more difficult situation to be in. So wouldn't it have been very easy for her to just devote her life to bitterness and hating her captors and wishing evil upon them? And rejoicing in the moment that she found out that this scumbag who did this to me has leprosy. And saying to herself, it's the justice of God that he die. But that's not what she did. Instead of plotting her revenge or taking joy in his misery... She made herself a vessel for God to use to lead her enemy to himself. Can I tell you something? The less you feel like talking about God, the more imperative it is that you do so. I promise you that this is true. The days that you feel least like telling anyone about Jesus, the days when you were discouraged and down and bummed out, you feel a thousand miles away from God, you feel like His hand of blessing is a million miles away, the last thing you ever want to do is put a smile on your face and tell somebody about Jesus is the very day that you should be paying close attention to who God puts in your life because that's the day you need to be talking about the Lord because your pain is his platform I don't want you to put a fake smile on your face I want you to tell the truth about God and what you'll find out is that your pain is going to be the most powerful, useful witness you could ever imagine. And on those great days when everything's wonderful and you just can't say enough about how the Lord's blessing you, you won't be nearly as effective. That's just a pattern of Scripture, doesn't it? And you're all looking at me like, that makes no sense. Welcome to distinct. Listen. Listen. Does it make sense that Psalm one nineteen says, "Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, I keep your word." Or, "It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes." I want you to write this down. You're listening, God. Colossians chapter one verse twenty four. Colossians 1.24. It's one of the most complicated, misunderstood, misguided, goofed up passages in the entire New Testament. But it teaches this very principle. What Paul is talking about in that text is he's talking about how God uses pain to advance in evangelism the lost world around us. He's making up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ. And people read that and go, what does that mean? That's what that means. God uses problems in our lives to force us to realize that we have a bigger problem. The second principle is this: our position isn't God's problem. Our position is not God's problem. When I say position, I mean your position and my position. Because here's the, the the point I want you to see in this narrative. Look who, look in this story so far and ask yourself this question: Who has spoken all of the most critical words in this entire story? It's not the king of Syria, it's not Naaman, and it's not Elisha. The critical, most pivotal words in this whole story revolve around, first of all, a slave girl who tells Naaman about the possibility of healing in Samaria. Then Naaman finds out that God's plan is for him to dunk in the river by listening to the words of who? Elijah, a servant. Then Naaman leaves in rage and is about to go home and die. And who stops him? Servants. Servant, servant, servant. Lowest, lowest, lowest least likely, least likely, least likely, some of you feel stuck in your position, and you feel that because you lack some credentials or credibility or an audience or an education or this or that or whatever the case may be, that God can't possibly use you. And I want you to understand something. Where did you ever get the idea that God cares one lick about your limitations? He ain't worried about that. He takes great delight in using the least likely people, doesn't he, to accomplish great things for his purpose. Don't let your position or lack thereof become a problem. That's not God's problem. But our perception is our problem. That's what our problem is. Not our position, our perception. See, all too often, here's what we do. We, in the, in the confines of our own mind, expect God to react in a certain way. We expect God to do things. We we want God to meet us on our terms. Naaman envisioned a certain way that God was going to work in his life. He had this idea in his mind about how a prophet would wave his hand over the spot and would do some chant or do some, you know, sprinkle some God pixie dust on him or something like that that was going to heal him of his leprosy. He had this whole idea. And when God didn't meet his expectations, he turned and went the other way. And do not turn your nose up at Naaman, Naamans. Because we're guilty of the very same thing. When God doesn't do things according to our plan, we, in our own perception and our own mental gymnastics, come up with the idea that God's not working or He's not doing it, and we turn and go the other way. Listen, Naaman had traveled a long way to get there, he had loaded. He had loaded chariots with all sorts of treasure. He had gotten people together. He got a letter from the king. He had all of these things. Think of all that he had had done to get to where he was. And yet in that moment, his perceptions were so strong, he was willing to walk away and leave it all hanging. We do that all the time. And we spiritualize it. And we say, well, God just wasn't in it. Oh, really? God wasn't in it. God didn't open that door. Oh, really? Maybe you didn't wait at the door long enough, maybe you didn't like who came to the door. Maybe you didn't like what was on the other side of the door, so you just tell everybody God didn't open the door. We get caught in this trap. We get disappointed, get disillusioned. God doesn't meet our expectations. What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when you feel like every time you pray, it's like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, like God doesn't even hear them. It's just nothing's working, nothing's happening. Can I tell you something? Something's happening. There's never a moment in your life that something's not happening. Never. That moment never happens. There's never a millisecond of your life that God's not doing a thousand different things, and we're unaware of almost all of them. But He's at work. What we got to do is we got to figure out how. Why am I missing everything? And you know what? It's our expectations. It's the things that we've convinced ourselves of that are blinding us from the reality of God's work around us. So Naaman says, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all of the earth except in Israel. And so he says, now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Like, hey, I got a chariot full of gold, a chariot full of silver. A whole bunch of super happening clothes that, I mean, he's telling Elisha. Bro, you are about to look like a sure enough televangelist when you put on these styling threads. But Elisha says, Nope, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Listen, what's going on here? I told the first service, I said, "Here, Here you find the first and only. Time in the history of the world that somebody offered a pastor a whole bunch of money and he said no. <laughs> what's happening here? Why is Elisha saying no? Well, for a lot of reasons, well, what's the primary reason? Because what he what Naaman has received is grace. You can't pay for grace. He's not going to confuse theologically what God has done in his life. So he obviously would refuse nothing because he realizes that not only Naaman, but all these people with Naaman are watching everything that's happening here. See, this isn't just about what God's doing in Naaman's life. What do you think the conversation was all the way back to Damascus? How many of those people do you think got saved between this moment and by the time? I guarantee you... There wasn't an unbeliever amongst them by the time they got back to Damascus. And Elisha realizes that. Verse 17, so Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of dirt. Well, now that's expected. So let me get this straight. You don't want my gold. You don't want my silver. You're not into Louis Vuitton. Could I have some dirt? For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. So here's what's happening. See, in his context, you worship the God of, of a land. So he's worshiping. He said, I'm going to worship the God of Israel, so, and, but I don't live in Israel. So I'm going to take some Israel back with me, and I'm going to spread this dirt out. And when I kneel down and worship, I'm going to worship on this dirt so I can worship the right God. So, see, it makes sense in his context. It just sounds weird to us, but that's what's going on. Verse 18, yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. Now, notice this. Now, it seems like all of our business is complete. Let me just pack up and go on home. But there's one last thing we have to cover. Naaman's thinking. And he says, hey, one more thing. Hey, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. See, he's thinking, and he's going, now hold on. Now. Now, I believe in the God of Israel, but I'm about to go home to Damascus. And when I get home, everyone I know worships the God of Remah, the false God of thunder. That's what they all worship. And when I go home, my boss, the king, is going to expect me to go in the temple with him. And to be right next to him. And to worship this God. And now, how's this going to work? So, Elisha is there. Any way you could pardon this? See, he's expressing that he's in a bit of a jam here. Now, what would you say if he was asking you this question? Wouldn't most people say, oh, no, uh uh-uh. That's not going to happen. No, you can't do that. No, 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 no. Wouldn't, wouldn't everyone expect Elisha to say, uh-uh, that's off the table. You do that and everything we've talked about is, Whoosh. in fact, the leprosy coming back times 10. That's the advice most people would give. Notice what the man of God says. Go in peace. He doesn't even acknowledge the question. He just says, go in peace. Huh. So is Elisha saying to us this morning that it's okay to worship false gods? Is that what he's saying? Come on. Well, what is he saying? And why do, why, why do we miss this principle? It exposes something about us, about our cultural Jesus. You know what it is? That we drank the Kool-Aid Somewhere along the line, we heard enough people say something, it made sense to us, so we just bought it. We believe, whether consciously or subconsciously, that once a person gets saved, man, that's it. Like, boom, you're saved, you're forgiven. Bam, eternity's set, you're good, don't worry. I hear people say it all the time. You know, last Sunday, Conley baptized his little boy. I hear people say, you know, well, my son's saved. My daughter's saved. Like, whew. Is that how that works? Or is salvation the beginning of a journey? The beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning. It's the starting point. Let let me tell you what Elisha's doing here. Elisha's saying something we have forgotten along the way. That when people get saved, it's the beginning of a journey. And you know what? We somehow have made up this scenario where you receive Christ and your sin is forgiven. And then suddenly all the things that you're not supposed to do stop happening in your life. All the cravings that you used to have go away. All the words that used to fly out of your mouth stop flying out of your mouth. And everything just magically becomes perfect. And then you, you come to church and everybody's going, you, yeah, hey, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. Well, newsflash, let me tell you something. Some people didn't grow up in a Christian home. Some people didn't go to VBS when they were a kid. Some people grew up and never even knew there was such a thing as a youth group. Some people never had their parents pray for them at bedtime. Some people never one time in their life ever prayed before they ate food. Some people didn't grow up like you. And do you know what? When I got saved, I didn't know anything except for that I was saved. And I still had a million things to figure out. And there were still a million things going on in my life that shouldn't have been going on. But I was trying to figure that out. And thank God I had a wife smart enough and patient enough to wait for me as God worked on me. But I see a lot of people who get saved, get thrust into a sea of Pharisees. Who just expect everything to change overnight. I want you to look at verse 18 again with new eyes. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. You know something, you don't ask for a pardon unless you know something's wrong. You know what verse 18 is telling us? The Spirit of God's already begun convicting the heart of Naaman. Do you know what Elisha is smart enough to do? Let God be God in Naaman's life. He doesn't need a lecture, he needs encouragement as he begins this new journey. In Christ, the message that is just screaming off the page in eighteen and nineteen is this: Naaman's faith was not complete, but it was a start. Listen, if the if it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain, how much faith does it take? How much faith does it take for God to save you? I've never met a person that came to faith in Christ with perfect faith. You didn't and I didn't. We should be aware of how God works in our lives. And we should be We should be, see, most people won't take the time to listen and to hear the Spirit of God working in the conviction in the man's heart and to know to keep their mouth shut. They're so quick to start yapping. God's working. Let God work in your spouse. Let God work in your children. Let Him work. Be a spiritual encouragement. The moral police never got anybody anywhere but jail. We look at all the pictures that are presented for us of the gospel in this passage. So as we kind of pull all this together, we think about there's Naaman in that water. He's cleansed in water. Does that make any sense? No. Do you know why people resist getting baptized? Because it doesn't make any sense. People tell me all the time, they say, Pastor, I, I know I'm supposed to get baptized, but I just don't see the point in it. Like if I'm saved, what difference does I hear that all the time. I'm saved. What difference does it make? Well, I don't know, Naaman. Why don't you tell me? Hmm? Because it doesn't make any sense to you? That's the point. That is the very point right there. And listen, when you obey God with your affection and trust Him, it unleashes the power of God in your life. But when you resist God, the opposite occurs. You see, maybe God isn't talking to you about baptism. Maybe He's talking to you about something else. Maybe He's talking to you about stopping something that you do. But you see, you don't stop because it doesn't make any sense to you. Well, why should I stop? I don't see it as that bad. Everyone else does it, so you just keep doing it because it makes sense to you. Maybe God's called you to start something, but you don't start it. Maybe He's telling you you need to start a community group or a D group, or you need to start a ministry, or you need to start being generous, or you need. To, but you don't do it. You know why? Because it doesn't make sense to you naming because here's what we do when it doesn't make sense to us we just march back to our chariot and go back to where we came from because we don't understand what God's doing that doesn't make any sense to us and we miss out on what God has in store for us right there it was right there for the taking but we couldn't see it because it didn't make sense welcome to christianity There's a little servant girl. She's suffering. Not because of her sin, but because of somebody else's. But yet her suffering leads to the salvation of somebody else. We have a suffering Savior who suffered not because of his sin, but because of ours. But through his suffering, it leads to our salvation. So this morning, I don't know what God's calling you to. I don't know what he's calling you away from. I don't know what act of obedience God's speaking to you. But will you please listen? Listen. Look and see. God is in the details. And wherever you are and whatever you're going through, God wants to use that to draw you closer to Him and to draw other people through you closer to Him. And the more it doesn't make sense, the more exciting it is to think what God might do. So if He's calling you to dunk in the water and it sounds weird, you should do that. If he's calling you unto salvation, do you think, I just don't get this. You mean confess with my mouth and believe in my heart and, and God will save me? Yes. Well, that just seems too simple. Exactly. Stop doing this. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Yes, exactly. Start doing this. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Yes, exactly. Exactly. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Let's stand and bow our heads.